Welcome to the Sharkpreneur Podcast with Kevin Harrington and Seth Green. Kevin Harrington is the inventor of the infomercial, one of the original sharks from the hit TV show Shark Tank, and has generated over $5 billion in TV and digital direct response sales. Seth Green is the world's first trusted authority on cutting-edge direct response marketing, a best-selling author, and the only three-time Marketer of the Year nominee. On the podcast, Kevin and Seth interview sharkpreneurs who share straight talk on what it takes to explode your business. Why do so many businesses struggle while others seem to explode overnight? Do you wish you had the secret to this type of exponential growth? Now, I've scaled more than 20 businesses to over $100 million, and it's not just luck. In my new book with Mark Tim, Mentor to Millions, you'll learn the repeatable framework I use in all my business ventures for massive success. Order at KevinMentor.com and get over $1,000 in bonuses. Head to KevinMentor.com. Welcome to the podcast. This is your host, Seth Green. Today, I have the good fortune to be joined by John Cronin of IP Capital Group. He is a managing director and chairman of... IP Capital Group, an intellectual property consulting firm, which represents the largest IP strategy consulting team in the world. John, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Nice to be here. Uh, let's go back in time a little bit. How did you get started? You founded the firm back in 98. How did that happen? Uh, in my earlier career, I was with IBM uh, for about 18 years, and I got taught uh, as an engineer um, to invent by what was called a uh, mentor inventor. Uh, he had a process that really worked well, and I ended up using it so much that I ended up having hundreds and hundreds of inventions filed and 100 patents uh, issued, and I became the top inventor at that time of the company. So that was kind of unusual for a young guy to have that track record, but it was really my, my mentor, Bruce Bertelson, that basically taught me how to do it. Um, but the, uh, the end result was that the president of IBM asked me, could I run a program? Wow. For IBM. So I created and ran what was called the IBM Patent Factory from about 1990, 1988 to 1998 or thereabouts. And, and I had a team of 20 people and they would run around IBM with myself and we would extract inventions and documents and, and, and run creativity sessions and all that stuff. And we ended up generating about a couple thousand patents more per year. So we went from like 1,200 patents to 3,200 patents. And that was a lot of fun. And then another team got uh, connected to mine when they ended up starting to license intellectual property. And we went from about 20 million to several billion dollars a year in, in licensing. So that was my track record when I got started. Uh, I had a brother who influenced me, who basically is a venture capitalist and runs a $5 billion fund, Western Presidio Capital. And uh, he got me interested in working for myself. So I, I left IBM to start IP Capital Group in 1998. Well, congratulations. That's a heck of a track record at you know, at a giant organization, talk to a, you, I replicated some of your success um, at IPCG, growing that into one heck of a IP strategy consulting firm. Talk a little bit about how you've grown IP Capital. Yeah, well, it started just myself, and then we ended up over the years uh, growing the team and getting more and more clients. Um, we started off with just a couple of services. So we were just doing invention extraction and documentation. But as we started to uh, move in the industry, we started to create more and more services. Uh, I'm not sure about this, but when I started, I was like the first IP consultant 
because people didn't know what that was when we started that. So as we started to grow the services, we started to recognize our clients needed strategy work. And as we started doing strategy work, our clients uh, started to recognize that they wanted more data to analyze their strategy. So we started doing analytical work and landscaping work. And as we started to do that, we started developing all sorts of different strategies. And we recognized that there were many different strategies and tactics that we could deploy. So we started creating a, a strategy portfolio um, playbook, and that led to all sorts of things. And, and then you be in a business every day, like any un, uh, entrepreneur, people ask you, can you do something? And so investors were saying, could we do due diligence? We hadn't done that before. So we you know, were very honest on the front end, we could try to do one. Uh, and that's how we today have about 45 different services uh, that we apply across our client base. And um, I'm quite pleased to, the, to sort of know that the with tech, we have a method to our approach. So we don't have to um, uh, have, our consultants are smart, but they don't have to be specialists in a technology area. So we are technology agnostic. So we deal with any technology that there is from biotech, hardware, software, energy, finance, it doesn't matter because we have a methodology and our client has content expertise. And by overlapping those two, we essentially can consult for anybody. Uh, and the client base started to change. In the beginning, it was just small companies, early stage companies that were looking to get a, a quick portfolio built. Uh, and then we started getting calls from larger companies. And pretty soon, we were working for the Fortune 500 companies all over the, all over the world. And last count, I think it was about 15% of the Fortune 500s we worked for. So because we're tech agnostic, we have a pretty big market. And because we have varying sizes of clients, we have a very big footprint uh, in terms of what we can do. All right, so we could, there's a lot in that. There was a lot in that answer. We could spend the whole episode unpacking that. The longer version of that story should probably be in a book somewhere. So uh, I'm going to go through those one at a time, I think, hopefully in order. You created the Intellectual Asset Management Program and the IB Capital System Methodology. Talk a little bit about what those are. Yeah, um, so the first thing is sort of, kind of contrasts sort of the what most companies do in intellectual property. Um, basically, you know, they have smart people and a lot of the people don't know what a patent is. Uh, so a lot of ideas just come up and they don't do anything with them. So there's a lot of wasted intellectual property, if you will. But some companies and some people in those companies actually sort of start talking about their ideas and maybe some manager or somebody say, you know, maybe we get a patent on that. So the, the inventor is then introduced to the patent attorney and the patent attorney writes up the invention. And basically what happens is that that person, that uh, inventor becomes skilled at this and, and they do more and more. But eventually what happens is the company's patent portfolio starts to grow a bit. And at the end of the day, they have this patent portfolio with some people that know about invention, most don't. And then something happens whereby they are getting sued by somebody and they say, geez, you know, do we have any patents in our portfolio? that we can use to counter assert. And they look at their portfolio and say yes or no. And it's kind of interesting that one little example leads you to the point um, that must mean that the company really doesn't have an IP strategy because they should have built in counter assertion patents to begin with, to go in the portfolio and ask, is there anything in there we can sell or monetize or counter assert is kind of after the fact. So we kind of call that the ad hoc way that most companies do this. And we reverse this totally with our methodology. So on the front end, we get started by understanding the business issues of the client, what they're doing from the business market product technology area. 
And then from that, we draw a picture called the landscape. And that landscape picture is kind of rich and it's about their business. And from that landscape, we then can run around the company extracting all the inventions. And from that landscape, we can also do patent analysis to put a map. So we have the patents from the outside, the inventions from the inside on the landscape, which is based on the business. And that allows us to do strategy work, uh, data-driven strategy. And when you look at it, you find really interesting things like there's some inventions that we're really worried about. What do you do about that? So there's a, there's a, there's a, uh, an issue that you might want to get around that patent. So that means there should be an event around process. So we create an event around process. Sometimes there's a place that's a white space and you want to create new inventions. And so we started saying, well, why don't we do invention on demand? That's a throwback from my IBM days that we can do that. And so every single time we looked at the landscape and the, the analytics from the patent literature and the internal inventions, we recognized with so many different strategies and so many different tactics that we could literally start developing services to make those tactics work. So one of my all-time favorites is Enable Publications, uh, whereby if you publish an invention and not patent it, nobody else can get a patent on it. So if you have improvements to your inventions, you might publish it much cheaper than a patent. And I started doing so much of that that I recognized that there must be a, a better way to do that. So I created a company called IP.com, which we spun out of IP Capital that is now the largest enabled publication uh, company there is. Uh, and, and so you can see that, you know, by working in the field over time, you can create new methods because, and then you, you can make those methods better and better. And today, in fact, we're using AI and robotic process automation to take these services and turn them into robots, <laughs> which is the next thing we're working on. That is absolutely fascinating. So what you are so much more than let's say a traditional IP law firm. So talk about the difference that is beyond what you've done because of your expertise than just someone who can say, hey, we can help you protect your IP. Yeah, that's a very, very good point, Seth. It's, um, when I first got started as, uh, I'm an engineer, I'm not a patent attorney. So when I first got started at this, first questions my clients started asking is, aren't you a patent attorney? And I said, no, I'm not. And, uh, and, and they said, well, isn't this the work of a patent attorney? So very early on in my career, I raised $10 million to get IP Capital started. Uh, and, and basically I decided to use a, a good part of that to understand what was and what wasn't the practice of law. And it turns out that the practice of law is really writing up patents for your client in front of the patent and trademark office or doing legal work like contracts and licensing agreements. So everything I just mentioned to you, the landscaping, the business issues, the strategy, none of that's the practice of law. As a matter of fact, most of my friends are patent attorneys. So I have a great deal of respect for what the patent attorneys do. It's a very creative art to write claims and to get invention out of the minds of inventors. Uh, but put that, put that aside, None of the things that I just mentioned is what patent firms do. They, so they're really, they're, they're really there to service a particular need, which is, I have an invention. Can you help me get a patent in the patent office? They, they of course, do strategy work with their clients and all that, but that's not the practice of law. And, and you're not finding them developing robots and AI to improve their practices. You, you know, they're basically really good at their trade, which is, uh, you know, filing patents from the patent trademark office for clients. So you mentioned an amazing number, like working with over 15% of the Fortune 500. 
why wouldn't a Fortune 500 company have their own IP department or why wouldn't they have some giant white shoe law firm on retainer? How and why would they work with you as opposed to doing it one of the other ways? Yeah, that's a really good question. As a matter of fact, my last answer kind of gets at that. Since we don't do what law firms do, they do need this strategy work and they need it to be data driven. So the only people they can call on is their internal staff to essentially figure that out. And, and a lot of companies don't have that expertise. I mean, look at the expertise I talked about for myself personally in an IP capital. So a lot of these things that we're talking about, IP landscape, invention on demand, uh, those are things that we actually invented 23, 24 years ago. And we've got trade names on them and created a lot of the language here. But a lot of the large companies sometimes do pr practice this, but they don't use lawyers to do it. They'll use an in internal group. And that group is called Intellectual Asset Management Group. And so they hire people and put them in a group. Like one of our, our senior advisors, Bruce Story, used to run the Intellectual Asset Management Group at Dow. And they had almost 100 people trying to do these kinds of things. So some companies actually try to develop teams to do this, uh, but most don't have it and they don't even have the vocabulary. So a lot of times these Fortune 500 companies that we work with are first to try to get involved in adding the structure to their in innovation and IP program. So that's one of our, our big things that we do management consultant to help them install these practices. All right. And now for what is, so the majority of our show audience is not the Fortune 500. Right. Um, so what are the most common mistakes you see regular business, small to medium-sized business owners making when it comes to their IP strategy, other than not having one at all, which is going to be yeah. your obvious answer? Right. Well, I think, you know, it, it starts someplace. So the, the, the first thing is have, I've now started six companies myself. So, um, you know, I've been involved as an entrepreneur in starting companies. So one of the first things, you know, you need to do when you're starting your company or being an entrepreneur is to figure out if you have intellectual property. Uh, and intellectual property, you should know, is more than just patents. It's trade secrets and it's uh, um, trademarks and things like that. So a lot of companies sort of get started, produce the product and start selling it or produce the service or the software and start selling it, not recognizing that the day they put that in that prototype for, uh, out to the public market, they have literally lost all their rights to get patents that day in the rest of the world, except in the U.S., you have up to a year to file. So a lot of clients that we take on in the very early stages don't even know that. So we're faced with that challenge. Hey, you already released your product. Now what do you do? So now we have to work with them to develop a strategy to improve the product and get patents on the improvements. So that's one mistake they make. They, they basically push their ideas out the door and they don't recognize it's patentable. A lot of times when you talk to the, uh, the CEOs or the founders, they don't think what they've invented is patentable. They just think that it should be obvious to everybody else. And that word obvious will kill them because obviousness is a legal consideration rather than uh, a layman's consideration. So there's many times that you have very, very strong patents that would appear obvious to you, but to the patent office, they're not. And the example I always use from my background at IBM was that IBM invented and, and filed a patent and had issued, which was like, the most important patent IBM had at the time, very early before I arrived, was the cursor of a computer. And the claim was that a cursor of a computer changed its shape based upon the function the computer was in. So it would go from that little line to the block insert mode. And that was patent. And 
that was a very valuable patent because you couldn't make a computer without it. As a matter of fact, every time you booted the computer up, you could see it, so it was easy to reverse engineer, and a jury could understand it very easily. So uh, you might have said, that's obvious. So I could just imagine the two software programmers in a cubicle next to each other saying, hey, you know, look at what I just did. Oh, that blinking line went to the blinking box. That's pretty cool. Yeah, uh, and then and then that would be it, right? And then luckily some patent attorney saw that and said, I can get a claim on that. So the, the second mistake, you know, the first one is to push the products out the door. But the second mistake is even worse, which is, is to think that, you know, is not an invention, it's obvious. So those are two things re regarding invention. There's a whole bunch of other topics about not having good NDAs and not having good employment agreements, working with a vendor who creates something that now they own it and you don't. I mean, it goes on and on. And that's the reason why, Sean, I recently started this new podcast series called Invent Anything, where I try to basically talk about all these things in 10, 15 minute snippets. And there's literally dozens, if not hundreds of these kind of topics. That is fascinating. We will we will tell all of our folks to go check out the Invent Anything podcast. You've built such an amazing company. What's your biggest challenge now? Uh, the biggest challenge now is that our industry, the intellectual property industry, is going through a tectonic shift uh, because of AI, machine learning, and uh, robotic process automation. So uh, I'll kind of give you a little background on this because it's really, it, it starts from something very simple like, you know, I can build a little piece of software now, a robot, that simply tells me, you know, very simple things like, hey, it's time to renew my patent because you got to renew it every three, seven, 11 years in the U.S. Or it could be more sophisticated, like, can I have a robot that I can use to interact with my, my inventors so that the robot is extracting the inventions? And so we built a, a prototype, and now it's a small company called Bright Marbles with the, with, the, with the software Opus. But Opus basically interviews the inventor, and it's a digital assistant. It asks questions, it gets answers, it does prior art searches. So now, all of a sudden, we're taking the patent attorney out of most of the loop because all that interaction is done by a machine. Now you take that all the way to the end and some of my friends actually have created um, uh, intellectual property and software to invent. So machines are now creating inventions without anybody in the loop. So you've got the ability to have a small little piece of software to improve the process all the way up to these machines inventing. And that is a tectonic shift in our industry. The fact that machines can invent so we've written some robots that help us with invention to take up 80, 90% of what inventors do. And, and, and a great example, you know, to, to give you, to, to make it so less abstract and make it real. Suppose and I am working with a company that improves shovels. And I go in and I ask them what they're working on and they say, well, John, we're basically improving the metallurgy of the shovel so it's rust resistance, stronger at the tip. We're working on carbon fibers for the, for, for the handle so it doesn't split, it's lighter and we're putting rubber on the handle to make it so it's insulated in case we're near high power lines or whatever. And so they tell you about all these ideas, right? And I can collect them in my process and show them the five or 10 patents they can get. But then I basically kind of stopped for a minute with them and said, Let, let's apply some creativity tools to what you're doing. Let's just have some fun. Uh, we've cataloged 1400 creativity tools, by the way, but uh, We'll use the one called random verb in front of the noun. So we say, okay, we're gonna look up in the dictionary three random words, mixing, flashing, and uh, uh, vibrating, three random verbs. And by the way, you can go to the web and there's an API. You, you, you say, give me a random verb, it gives you back, right? So 
So I say, well, what, what has flashing shovel got to do with what you're doing? And they look at me, flashing shovel. Uh, and then the guy says, you know, we're putting these rubber on the handles to make them basically insulated from power lines. If we put a circuit on the shovel and put a light on the shovel, it would basically flash telling us we're getting near a power line. And one, another guy says, you know, I know that's doable because I have this thing I bought from Home Depot that you can stick in and it, it, it tells you there's power coming up. So then they get excited and another guy says, well, let's put a little radio on it and build an app and then management will know and, and on and on and on. They go crazy. Now, what is flashing shovel? What is flashing random verb got to do with shovel? The associative ability, associative thinking ability of, of the people is where the creation occurs. So that's an example of a creativity tool producing invention. And now the next step is, okay, uh, if I want to produce a robot here, that's easy to give you the verb. But wouldn't it make sense before I gave you those verbs, like flashing shovel, vibrating shovel, whatever, I look it up in the patent literature to see if that actually exists. So maybe vibrating shovel already existed. So I'm not going to give you that verb. I'm going to give you flashing shovel because I can't find anything in the patent literature that's like that. So now we have flashing shovel. I know the starting point is novel. Then the computer through this opus thing can start asking questions about how to make it. And pretty soon the computer could do that. And so our industry, the intellectual property invention industry is going through such a shift right now. So important because even the American Association of Intellectual Property Law Lawyers, they have small breakout groups now asking the question, what do we do when these robots start to invent? And so this is not just make believe, this is actually happening today. That's a big issue. Yeah, I can imagine that is absolutely incredible. Um, your, your passion's obvious, your expertise is incredible. For our folks who are watching and listening, listening and wanna learn more about what you do, where is the best place for us to send them? I think you could just get on our website, uh, www.ipcg.com uh, or just Google IP Capital Group, you'll find it, or, or myself. Uh, we get lots of inbound info ads from all sorts of people, so they could do that. I bet. Well, this has been Seth Green with John Cronin of IP Capital Group, ipcg.com. John, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks so much, John, and thanks everyone else. Thanks everybody for watching or listening. We'll see you next time. Do you need money to fund your idea, product, or service? Are you ready to take your business to the next level but need capital to get it done? Kevin Harrington has heard more than 50,000 pitches and knows how to help you make the perfect pitch to get the funding for your entrepreneurial dream. He's distilled the process down in his perfect pitch cheat sheet, and it's yours for free. Just text PITCH to him right now at 727-888-2100. Text PITCH to 727-888-2100 right now and claim your free perfect pitch cheat sheet. Text PITCH to 727-888-2100 to start funding your dream today. This show has been produced by Market Domination, LLC. To discover how you can have your own show completely done for you and turn it into a real published book and become the authority in your marketplace, go to www.marketdominationllc.com slash podcast offer. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.